she was shot multiple times with a rifle. This retired police officer tells her heroic story with hair-raising details, including actual dispatch audio. She's one of our heroes. This is one of the most listened to episodes of the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show, done in the very early days of the show. If you never listened, you should start here. Welcome to the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. In the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show, we are joined by special guests talking about their experiences, their realities of investigating crimes, plus those who have experienced horrendous trauma, police, first responders, military, and victims of crime share their stories. Hi, I'm John J. Wiley. In addition to being a broadcaster, I'm also a retired police sergeant. Be sure to check out our website, letradio.com and also like us on Facebook. Search for the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show. Welcome to another edition of the Radio Show. I'm John J. Wiley, joined by Robert Greenberg in studio with the J. How's it going? Good. I should call you the esteemed Robert Greenberg. I'm esteemed now. Yes, <laughs> It's esteemed, highly astute. I'm fired up today, Jay. I'm fired up today. And there's a good reason why uh, we have a phenomenal guest today, retired police officer Stacy West from Auburndale Police Department. I've been Auburndale, bragging Florida. about Stacy since I heard her speak at the Wounded Officers Gala last month. And I got to tell people, Stacy is one hell of a, a warrior and survivor. Uh, she went through one of the most hellacious acts of violence one can imagine uh, survived is recovering living a good life and her story is incredible i don't normally listen to you know police audio of, of horrific situations i don't watch dash cams body cams i find they get my adrenaline going and i get it takes a long time to get ratcheted back down so i don't watch them but i did listen to her audio oh my goodness it's incredible and we will play that during the show today and uh, we'll let you know when it's coming up in the interview and let you know right, right away if you are someone who's easily disturbed about very emotional very dramatic very intense audio we'll, we'll let you know you might want to walk away for a little while because it's some some tough stuff it really is she's a courageous woman courageous phenomenal and i'm glad you told me about her and what do you say let's go to the phones let's talk to stacy joining us on the phone from the north central florida region Retired police officer Stacy West. Stacy, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you guys? Very good. And I'm thrilled. Uh, Robert told me about you quite a while ago. He went to the Wounded Officer Initiative Gala and, and he heard you speak. He got a chance to meet you. And he said, Jay, you've got to talk to Stacy West. You've got to hear her story. You are a trooper. My hat's off to you. Incredible. Thank you. I appreciate that. I, I don't give out compliments very often. No, he doesn't. Especially, well, police work so easy to say, well, if I was in that situation, I'd do this. I was blown away by how, uh, not only your courage, uh, your valor, but you had the presence of mind, and we'll play the audio a little bit later on, you had the presence of mind to tell responding officers where the shooter was in the most dire circumstances, and uh, I'm just blown away. Very impressed. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and I don't blame people for Monday morning quarterbacking. I used to do that as well until this incident, it. and it's a lesson learned. So <laughs> Yeah, no one really knows what they'll do until the situation occurs. Exactly. Well, let's talk about your career with the Auburndale, Florida Police Department. You were on the job for a short period of time. Yeah, so I started with them, um, I think it was like April 5th of 2010, 
and I was only on the force for about 17 months. Now, Arbindale is a small city. I think the population at the time was about 14,000 people. And our police officers, we have 34 total. That includes our chief of police and deputy chief. So um, each squad consisted of about five to six people. Um, you had a sergeant, a corporal, and then your three report takers or call takers, however you want to, whatever you want to call them, patrol officers. So our shift had six. We had a canine as well, so we were lucky enough to have the sixth person. Um, and it was a Friday night, about 17 months into my career. It would have been um, September 2nd, 2011. So about 17 months into my career, 10 o'clock at night, I get a call for a 911 hang-up, possibly family-related. And I remember coming, just finishing up a neighborhood canvas thing that I was doing, kind of a neighborhood patrol, and I got the call, keyed up, told them that I was on my way, and they told me the address, and the address sounded very familiar to me, and I had pulled it up on the map in my patrol car, and I realized I'd been there before, probably a month or two prior for a barking dog complaint, and I remember thinking to myself what a jerk this guy was. Um, You remember those people, for sure. I remember the guy, yes, um, but the call from before, you know, it was 2 o'clock in the morning, so I was waking him up in the middle of the night, and so he was grumpy, so I just shook it off as, you know, he had a little temper then, but it still made me feel like I didn't want to have to go out there and deal with his demeanor a second time, so I actually went to key up. We have this in-car radio system where we can talk around. It's like a talk-around channel that isn't monitored by any kind of dispatch so we can freely talk on it. And I actually went to key up and say that I, you know, didn't want to deal with him again, but maybe not in the nicest words. And then I remembered that my lieutenant was listening in that night. He was actually using that channel for a football game. So I didn't key up and say anything, and I never keyed up on the radio and said anything because usually when we use the in-car, I were to say something like that, someone would just say, okay, well, I'll meet you over there. Mm-hmm. And in Arbindale, we try to keep down on the radio traffic because we have three different agencies on our radio frequency. We have Arbindale Police Department, Winter Haven Police Department, and the Polk County Sheriff's Office. And that's important to know because there's a lot of radio traffic. So we try to stay off of it as much as possible. So I make my way up there. Um, it takes me about, I don't know, five minutes to get up there. I'm not in any kind of rush. And on the way, dispatch gets back to me and says, um, the mother has possibly left, and the father is still there, and the person that had called it in was an eight-year-old little girl, and when she called it in, she was very distraught, you know, said that her parents were fighting, and there were some signals there that dispatch could have told me that would have maybe raised some red flags, but the, the child being distraught and that was never relayed to me, so, you know, I thought I was going to meet dad and the child. And I didn't think twice about it. It'd be a typical domestic disturbance call. Yeah, yeah, but the parties had separated. So usually at that point, you know, the threat is pretty much gone once one of the the parties leaves. Well, let me do this. We're going to play the actual audio right here so so, uh, people can hear it. And then we'll rejoin the conversation because it's important, I think, to people hear it. And I'll say this before we play it. 
when I listen to it, and Robert will tell you, I'm not the type of guy who who watches dash cam videos or body camera videos that, that find it very disturbing. They get my adrenaline up, and I get very upset. So I was like reluctant, but I I said I I had to, to do this. I shed a few tears listening to your audio the first time. So we're going to play it right now. This is actual police audio from September 2nd, 2011. And Jay, before we uh, cut to that audio, folks, if you're listening right now and there's some young children in the room... You might want to move them away. Yeah. uh, Please... uh because it is upsetting. And what's the old saying? It's a warning. Uh, some people may find this audio disturbing. Signal see police audio from Auburndale, Florida Police Department. And uh, Stacy, I got to tell you, I cried. Uh, I got upset. Part of me, the police part of me was like, God, get there. Uh, and I'm... Uh, the presence it's hard of, to come up with words. The presence of mind, here you are. You're To me, you're mortally wounded and you're still able to give the address of where this scumbag is that shot yeah. you to responding officers. That right there blew me away. Yeah, we both mm-hmm. were blown away. Do you even recall doing that? I mean, what's your recollection uh, of that? And Once the shots started firing, can you, can, you, can you walk us through that part to the end? Yeah, sure, absolutely. So, you know, when I got into this subdivision, I knew exactly where I was going. The lights were off on my patrol car. I quietly, you know, parked a house away like they you know, train you to do. So... I get out of my patrol car, and I the house is completely blacked out. I assumed he had gone to bed. There was only one truck in the driveway, so I knew that she was gone because the last time there were two vehicles there. And so I'm walking up to the house. I have my 
right hand on my duty weapon, the first safety, the, the hood of the safety is down, and I have my thumb on the second safety just in case I needed to pull it. So I walk up there. I'm to the left of the door because the other side has the garage wall, and that was the only place for me to stand. And there's, like, the door, some space, and then a window. So I stood in between the door and the window, reached up with my left hand, rang the doorbell, reached over with my left hand, knocked on the door, and then I started to step to the side to check the window. And as I looked at the window is when he started shooting me. So the first round that comes through gets me right out right out the gate. He gets me with the first round. So he either watched me walking up or he looked out the peephole and didn't see me standing there and knew that that was the only place I could be. Um, and he aimed for me. So the first round goes off. It completely, uh, like, perforates my hearing. It's so loud. And um, I'm in shock initially, and I'm not sure if he's shooting me through the window because I'm looking at the window or if he's shooting me through the door. Go, happening very quickly but slow at the same time, everything kind of slows down for you. And I think to myself, oh, my God, I'm being shot right now. And the first round hits my right forearm that was on my gun and slings it backwards. It had perforated both arteries and damaged the median nerve. It didn't feel like pain, but it felt like a huge blow of pressure to the right, the right forearm. Well, that kind of turned me back towards the door. And when it did, the second round actually gets my duty weapon. It goes across the top of the slide of my duty weapon, forcing the slide away from the grip and forcing the magazine out onto the ground. And the round inside um, discharged. And then now he's slapping the trigger as fast as he can. And so that one pushed me just a little bit, you know, more into front of the door. So then he, the next round gets me in my right lower abdomen. And that one um, actually goes through my intestines, through my hip and out my back. And uh, that one just completely knocked me off my feet, and I just scream to the top of my lungs, and I fall backwards. And when I hit the pavement, the hole that he just put in my hip cracks down to my femur. So at this point, I have no idea that my duty weapon is completely disabled, but um, I know that I'm hurt extremely bad. And I roll over to my left side, and I get... You know, I'm just seeing the sparks like they're coming right over my head. He's just continuing to shoot and shoot and shoot. And while I roll over to my left side, my thought is just to get out of there, get away from it. And I'm just thinking, no, 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 no. I'm like, this isn't happening. I'm not ready for this. I'm I'm not ready to die. And uh, I start to drag myself across the lawn. And my mic falls off of my shoulder onto my shirt pocket and that's what triggers me to key up and uh, because it was just swinging there so I grabbed the mic and with my left hand and I just scream help me and I crawl a little farther and I scream again that I I need 911 and crawl a little farther scream again that I've been hit I have no idea if I'm getting out because I can't hear anything this guy just blew my eardrums out and I have so much adrenaline going, 
you know, I'm, I couldn't press my emergency button because I never thought to do that. And I was so focused on just getting away. So I seen some opening in, in these hedges that he had, and I'm just going towards the opening towards the neighbor's house. It's probably a 50 foot drag from his front door to the neighbor's house. And when you say drag, Stacey, you, you could not move the right side of your body, correct? Exactly. Yes. So I'm just dragging myself across the lawn with the left side of my body, basically with my elbow bent because I have my mic in my hand. So it's kind of like a low military crawl just without the use of my right side. Uh, having right. the presence of mind to crawl to get to some cover, it was uh, phenomenal. I don't know who did your training, but uh, I don't know if they trained you that way or that was just something instinctually you came up with. But uh, that probably saved your life right there. Right. So as I get through those hedges that separated his yard from the neighbor's yard, I'm coming around and I can hear the the neighbor's garage opening. So at that point, I'm like, thank God, you know, somebody is here to help me. And I drag myself um, just to the opening of their garage. And the garage is probably about halfway up at this point. And I look inside and I see a Hispanic female and two Hispanic men. One is pretty much in the middle of the garage and the other two are by the doorway near near the entrance to the house. And um, I look up and I just say, help me, please help me. And they panicked, ran back in the house and hit the garage door button. Now I'm still outside of the garage. So I had to drag myself as the door was coming down. And once I got um, near the sensors, it made the door go back up. My body uh, crossed the sensors, made the door go back up. And I got just inside and rolled over onto my back. And I just remember being so exhausted, there was no way I could drag myself any further. And um, there's nowhere for me to take cover in the garage. I have no idea where this guy is that's been shooting me. And I have no idea if I've gotten out on the radio. So my mic is, you can't hear what's going on. Exactly. Um, because I was so focused on trying to find cover. So I pick up my mic. It had fallen down to my wayside. And I'm laying on my back. And I pick my mic up. And... I can't hear what's being said, but it sounds like everybody is so calm on the radio. And I was afraid that I didn't get out. Um, And I key up and I said, hey, did you guys hear me? Um, I've been shot. And my uncle, who worked for Winter Haven Police Department, was a sergeant for them, keys up. And he says, we we heard you, Stacy. We're on our way. Hang in there, okay? And I tell him, I don't think I'm going to make it. I'm hit bad. And I truly thought that I was going to die um, that night and bleed out right there in that garage. How many times so, were you hit, Stacy? Um, they count it as three since the duty weapon was hit, but my actual body was hit twice. And that was the with right, an AK-47? Um, it's an SKS assault rifle, okay. which I'm told is a similar round to an AK-47. That's a big round. It's a exactly. big, vicious round. I'm no ballistics expert. It's, it's a, I'm not usually a man of few words, but I can't even come up with a response or question to say to you. Like, I've been through, my stuff pales in comparison. Comparison is just, is no comparison. It's like night and day. I can't imagine being in a garage, A, the people 
leaving you and trying to close the garage door on you. Can't imagine that. Can't imagine not being sure if people uh, on the police radio heard you and then feeling like you're all alone in the garage. How long did it take people to get there to rescue you? When I look at the, over the transcripts, um, by the time my partners actually found me, I think it had been seven minutes from the time I screamed out time. of the radio. Yes. Um, now, what happened was they got to the scene sooner. It didn't take them, I think, maybe four or five minutes to get to the scene, maybe five. And then they went to the correct house initially. But before they got there, the Spanish family, you know, I'm laying there and I'm I had turned my mic all the way down because I didn't want this guy to, to try to find me. Um, I had no idea what the suspect was doing, so I turned my mic down and just in case he was near and wouldn't hear the radio traffic. But also I'm trying to get the attention of whoever it is is inside the house to come out and shut this garage door. And um, they come out. They are hitting the garage door button multiple times. The garage door is going up and down, up and down. They go back inside. The door is still up. And I'm still having to focus on the radio and worry about where this guy is. I have no way to defend myself, and I'm basically laying there extremely vulnerable. Well, I finally get them to come out a second time, but they don't come all the way out. They just open the garage door enough to stick one hand out, hit the garage door button, and pull the hand back in and close the door. At that point, the garage door is coming down. So when my partners got there, the garage was closed, and the only evidence was a little blood splatter on the concrete that could have looked like an oil spill in the dark. So they initially had gone to the right house, tried the garage. It was locked, and they immediately started going to across the suspect's house to the next house because they wondered maybe I was confused, wasn't giving the the proper instructions um, and was getting, you know, east and west or what side of the suspect's house I was on confused. So they crossed over the suspect's house, go to um, the address of 407 and knock on that door, get them to open the garage. The garage is clear. So they go back to the suspect's house at 413, try his garage. It's locked. And they go back to 419 where they were initially, where I initially was. And that's whenever uh, they get the occupants of that house to open the door and they find them in, in that garage. So wow. it took them, once they got on scene, probably another two minutes um, to complete all of that. So, yeah, about seven minutes before my partners were able to get there with me. Were you conscious the entire time? I was. I was conscious the entire time. My blood, uh, the, the blood in my stomach was... My stomach was getting a lot of pressure because the blood was filling it, and um, I had looked at my arm. It just looked completely useless, almost like initially I thought he, he got me with a shotgun because it felt like multiple bullets were hitting me, and the way my arm looked, it looked like he got me with a shotgun. I've seen the um, photographs. It certainly did. Yeah. Yeah. So whenever they're on their way to me, they're asking me these questions, you know, where is he at? What kind of weapon does he have? And um, I said, you know, some kind of shotgun, it could be an automatic because I'm thinking, you know, if it's not a shotgun, it's something that puts a lot of bullets at one time through the door because he was just slapping the trigger. When they got there, they kept thinking that he had a shotgun when really he did. He had a shotgun 
a, a mini Ruger and an SKS assault rifle and thousands of rounds of ammunition in that house. So basically, I'm just laying there, giving them directions, and still had no thought process of that emergency button. Now, we have three agencies now on this, this radio frequency. So we have three different agencies that want to talk on the radio frequency, which also started causing an issue with me trying to give instructions. And at one point, instead of continuing to talk to me and ask me questions, they started talking to each other, you know what I mean, everybody on, on the channel. And I can feel myself getting overwhelmed because I'm laying there dying, and all I want is for somebody to get there as quickly as possible. And to me, I'm being so clear, and I'm getting the instructions out the best I know how, and somehow it's still getting mixed up. And um, I remember at one point when my partner said that they were on scene, they they asked Stacy, "Where are you? We're outside. We don't see you." And I go to tell them, and somebody keys up, and they say 407. And I immediately knew that that was going to cause my partners to leave the proper house and cross the suspect's house and go to 407. And I immediately started trying to key up, but I kept getting the busy signal, and it would just beep and beep. Air is now coming on. Um, my sergeant's coming on. Like, there's a lot of people now coming on to the channel, and I can't get out. And I, somebody says, I think she said 407. She's in a baby blue house, um, which was completely inaccurate. And I think what happened is maybe they looked at a map, just chose the wrong side of the house because there's no way you would have known that the numericals went from 407 to 413 to 419. I didn't even know that they jumped like that. So I key up and I just say, get off the radio, God damn it. I'm at 415, the house west of 413. And 413 is a baby blue house. I'm in the next house. And that's about the time my partner comes on, comes on and says, I found her. It's 419. It's 419. And he just busts through the door and opens the garage door and just immediately starts going to work on, you know, getting the blood to stop and trying to find where all I've been hit at. It's amazing that you survived. It's an amazing testament to uh, the tenacity of the, the other law enforcement officers you worked with. And, of course, I'm sure the medical staff. You underwent a host of surgeries, I'm sure. I did. Um, I think I went through three within the first uh, 24 to 48 hours for my intestine. My arm actually laid, um, I think, for six hours without blood flow before they ever even got wow. to it because I had so much damage. Um, and thank God they were able to save the arm as well as my life. But um, So, yeah, I think a total, before it was all said and done, eight surgeries total, 20 days in the hospital, six of that in intensive care. And how old were you when this happened? I would have been 26. So you're a young officer, mm-hmm. relatively new on the job. Some people mm-hmm. might even say rookie, and that 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 is just incredible stuff you went through. And um, I'm sure that the recovery process involved years and years of rehabilitation and physical therapy and other issues as well. Yeah. Um, so I went through 15 months of physical therapy. I had to be in a wheelchair for three of those months, the first three months, because um, they couldn't plate the hole in my hip. Uh, So from the time I got in the hospital to the time they actually figured out what to do with the crack down my hip, it had been 10 days. So I laid there with that broken hip for 10 days. 
um, with two bullet holes that they had to pack twice a day. And the only way that they allow bullet holes to heal is they take this bleach or peroxide solution, they put, put gauze in it, and then they shove that gauze into the holes. They wait 12 hours for the tissues to adhere to the gauze, and then they rip it out. Um, And they do that twice a day. So I had to do that twice a day for the first three or four months until those those wounds healed. I had a colostomy bag that I had to learn how to live with for a year. Um, Because of all the intestinal damage, they couldn't plate the hole in the hip, so I had to be in a wheelchair long enough to give my hip time to become strong enough for me to actually take a step on my feet. And I went through learning how to rewalk again. Um, initially, I was in therapy for physical therapy five days a week. Um, you, had days interesting, my- you, had, you had an interesting story to tell about your initial contact when you started your therapy. Can you share that with us? My initial contact when I started my therapy. In addition to the physical therapy, was there emotional and uh, mental therapy? Oh, yes. Um, yes. So this happened in September Around March, I some of the things I was saying was making a sergeant that worked at our police department a little uncomfortable and thought maybe I should speak to a professional about it and, and seek some help. And I said, okay, well, there was a therapist that contracted with our local sheriff's office who was recommended to us by the sheriff's office. And um, he had spoken to all the police officers the night that it happened and the following week to kind of clear them to go back to work. And he had previously spoken to me while I was in the hospital, but very briefly. So I said, sure, you know, I'll go, um, I'll go speak to this guy. That's fine. Stacy, can you share some of the things that you were saying that was making your sergeant concerned? Yeah, I, I don't remember like extreme specifics. I know that I had a lot of numbness to my leg. I couldn't feel parts of it due to the nerve damage from the hip injury. And weirdly, I kept wanting to poke it and scrape it with sharp objects. Um, Just weird things like that. The way I was feeling about, you know, um, my relationship and, um, just going down dark avenues of uh, you know making poor decisions. Right. So I don't remember exact specifics. I just remember him telling me um, that you were you know, living, your life, living a, in a dark hell at that moment. Exactly. And don't let this moment ruin the good things that you have going on in your life. So gotcha. basically, you know, don't let it ruin your relationships and don't let it send you down this area. So he, he wanted me to speak to somebody. So I did. Um, I go to this doctor, and the first thing the doctor does for the first 10 minutes is tell me how he does not take health insurance, much less workman's comp, and basically tries to make me feel like what a privilege it is that he has made time in his schedule to see me that day. Unreal. His patients are cash only. How do, how so, do they refer you to him? I, I, that makes no he, sense. Yeah, well, he contracts, see, the sheriff's office contracts him for any events that they have. So but he's, they basically use him, you know, to clear people to go back to work. So they didn't know. I, I highly doubt anybody had any idea 
when I went into that session that he was going to make me feel like I'm the one that should be privileged to be sitting in his office. It's insulting. Just uh, he- hearing that being told Absolutely. to me, I'm, in- I'm insulted. And I'm offended. sure you took care of that, correct? Well, it infuriated me. So it just set the mood was wrong altogether <laughs> from the get-go. So now I'm pissed. I'm sitting there and I'm pissed. And he asked me what was going on, and I told him, you know, I'm having some strange thoughts. I'm having a hard time getting through my anxieties. And, you know, I, it was a long time before I could even go out of the house at night. I didn't knock on people's doors. I didn't ring doorbells. I couldn't watch violent movies. I really struggled with getting through the trauma that I experienced. And he said, well, I can put you on this medicine, this medicine, this medicine. And I said, well, I don't want to be on medicine, uh, you know. And he said, well, then why are you here? And I told him, I said, well, I thought you were supposed to give me techniques of how I can move through these things. I know what's wrong with me. I was shot through an effing door. Like, you're supposed to be... You can curse. It's okay, Trish. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I just don't want to offend anybody. Um, you know, I, I just thought that he would take me with baby steps on things I can do to move through these issues I was having. And Please tell me you found somebody else. Eventually, it would be um, years later. So he basically said, you know, well, you can come talk to me about it if you want. However, Workman's Comp is going to have to pay me ahead of time before the appointment, before wow. I can see you. Wow. What a so, jackass. It, I'm going to say this right now. <laughs> what a jerk. Yeah. yeah. Oh so I God. said, you know what? Just give me some Ambien and I'll be on my way. Yeah. And he did. He wrote me the Ambien um, so I could sleep at night and I never went back. Um, and I never went to anybody else. You know, I told my police department about it, and they wanted to provide somebody else for me. They only went with him because he was a recommendation from the sheriff's office. You know, I told them, no, don't worry about it. If it's just going to be a matter of me speaking to somebody, I do that all the time now. I've been open about it from day one. I mean, my chief of police had me going to do little speaking engagements a month out because he thought it was important. Yes. He thought it was important for me to start accepting what happened and not harbor anything. I think he might have been right. Well, um, how did you, you feel know, about I was, that? I was nervous at first, and I was still in the wheelchair. The first speaking engagement I remember, Chief McLeod took me to. It was a Rotary Club meeting for the city of Arbondale. There were maybe, I don't know, maybe 10 people in the room. And I just sat there in my wheelchair, and I talked about what happened that night. And... Then he took me to another, you know, small little thing. And then I remember the first event I did was 200 people for a domestic violence conference. And I had five photos, and I just stood there and talked about what happened to me. And until I got through, like, my 50th time doing it, um, you know, I would shake uncontrollably. I remember standing in front of these people or sitting in front of them and just, there's nothing I could do to control it. My body would just... I don't even know how to explain it. It's it adrenaline. Shook. It's adrenaline yeah. firing through you. Yeah, it's a fight or flight syndrome being kicked up. I, I get it 100%. And it, it feels like you're shaking all over the place, but it, it doesn't look like the way to other people. Yeah, I don't know. Nobody's ever commented on it, but I just remember just shaking. And, you know, I was scared. I was nervous to do it, but I'm so glad he did that. And I owe him so much for that because it does help every time I talk about it. And it does make me feel like it's not... You know, it hasn't been forgotten. Every time I say it to a group, 
I feel like they haven't forgotten me. You know what I mean? Does it ever feel like you're talking about someone else yet when you tell the story or is it still very deeply personal to you? Um, it's still very deeply personal. Now, it depends on the audience. So the speaking engagement I did for Wounded Officers Initiative, that was extremely personal. That was from the heart and that was very hard for me to do. I do occasionally, or I used to, go speak to the academies. And when I do stuff like that, it's very clinical. So there's no real emotion attached to it. I'm just basically walking them through the crime scene photos, and it's very, very clinical. Almost so like testifying in court. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you do um, speaking games, and you did things the Wounded Officers Initiative. And, which uh, I was I'm there, and, and you were phenomenal. That's why I, I immediately came back and spoke to Jay that we had to have you on, because from what you went through and the composure that you have relating this story um, in 30 years, Stacy, I haven't seen anybody as no. composed as you, regardless of the amount of years you've had on the job. Thank you. Well, I owe my composure now to, like I said, uh, Chief McLeod, who got me out there initially talking about it. So. And you were retired from the agency? I was. Um, I think it was March of 2013. Um, they basically, and I knew early on that I probably wasn't going to be able to go back to work. I, for a long time, wanted just a different position, you know, victim's mm-hmm. advocate or something, but it's a small, small agency. agency. yeah. Exactly. So my husband wanted me to inquire if there was any kind of, you know, retirement in place that I could take advantage of. So I did. I asked the chief of police if, you know, I qualified for a medical retirement. And he said he would look into it. And of course, you know, I did. And he gave me the option. And I felt so guilty, so guilty taking it and walking away. But he basically said, listen, if I create a position for you and in a year or two, you're unhappy, you've basically lost this chance um, at this retirement. Right. At that point, I can't offer it to you. He said, so just, you know, take this and, you know, start a new life, a new career. You can stay in law enforcement if you want, you know, and I did try that as a civilian. So I did. I took it. My husband was happy. He, that's what he wanted me to do as well. And it probably overall was, was healthier for me to to do that mentally. It was healthier for me to just... And you got married after the incident. I did, yes. Um, I was engaged at the time. And my husband and my mom took care of me the entire time through that. Got so to I know you well. Uh, you got to know you very intimately, I bet. Oh, yeah. Um you know, I only had one arm. I had to do physical therapy for 15 months to get my hand to work again. So my husband changed colostomy bags, bedside commodes. He gave me bed baths. Some of the most humiliating things you can ever experience. And I cried the first time he had to change my bedpan because I was so humiliated. That's not something that your fiance should have to do for you. So, yes, as soon as I was able to walk again, I told him, you know, I said, figure out when you can take off work and let's get married. And by April 2012, we were married. Congratulations. And you, know, you hit a point that a lot of people don't think of. In the news media, when an officer is, is severely injured, a shooting situation like yours, they'll often say, 
the good news is the officer is not life-threatening injuries they're expected to survive and they don't talk about it ever again and they don't they don't talk about the process of rebuilding your life afterwards and they certainly never talk about how this impacts our spouses other people in our family and how their lives change too so you did a really good example of of how much is not only affected you but affected your husband as well absolutely he rarely talks about it when he does he can't without getting choked up i mean it still affects him and it's been almost six years same with my mom yeah you know i've never met you and uh just listening to the audio i got choked up i've been in situations where other officers needed help and you know how your adrenaline goes right away and you want to get there you want to do something and that's what i found myself doing is i was listening to audio something happened five six years ago wanting to say get over there and help her you know so i I can only imagine what your husband goes through oh yeah absolutely um and he actually worked in the jail at the time so he received the news from somebody within the jail that had a radio that arbindale officer was shot and he called dispatch and he said you know can you tell me who it is and they said no unfortunately we can't release that he said well can you just tell me is it alpha 357 and the lady said i I need to put you on hold for a supervisor. And, and then he, he knew. immediately it was me. Yeah. yeah. Stacy, I have a question that I know from my own experience. That one of the things that, that happened to me when I was recovering from my physical injuries and I had the emotional and mental injuries, is the term I like to use, is I suffered from a tremendous sense of isolation and loneliness, uh, not just from other people in the community and other police, but from my spouse as well. Did you find that to be the case for you? Um. So when I was laying there in the garage and I'm waiting for my backup to get there, all I could think about was that I'm not going to wake up to see tomorrow. And all I wanted in that very moment was for my mom to be there and my husband, who was my fiance at the time, to be there. And I just kept thinking to myself how unfair it was going to be for them because I wasn't going to get a chance to tell them that I loved them one last time or say goodbye. And that is the hardest feeling to try to explain to somebody is just how alone you are in that very moment. And just knowing that you're you're going to die and you're not going to make it. Well, um, we can certainly hear in your yeah, voice. You did, you did a real good job yeah. explaining it right there. Yeah, it always gets me um, trying to explain that part. And I know, I, you know, I, that is the worst part of me. And if I try to sit there and think about that moment, uh, I could go into another depression right there. I, I tell you this, and this is an interesting little side note here. Back in Baltimore, I remember having a conversation with uh, some of the guys in the squad I worked with. And I told them, I've been in, in a lot of gunfights. And I said to them, if something bad happens to me, do not let me die in the dirt, in the gutter. You know, at least put me in a wagon or, or a police car or something. So I can only begin to imagine the impact when you knew deep down that this is probably going to be the end for you. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that's got to carry over into the rest of your life. You know, not necessarily in a negative way. But for me, I found myself really withdrawing from a lot of people that were important to me, and I didn't want to do that. Right. And I did go through that. Um, Initially, I felt like nobody understood. Oh, yeah. Um, 
my police department tried to have other people, you know, within the county who had been shot come speak to me while I was in the hospital to try to give me somebody to relate to. But either they had the severity of the injuries, but they didn't understand the fight that I went through, or they understood the fight and thinking that you're going to die, but they didn't have the severity of the injuries. So they didn't understand the struggle you had the double whammy term. both yeah and, and for those of you listening right now you would if to see stacy now you would never imagine this horrific incident that you went through because you don't bear the outward physical scars they're all right now emotional thank god mm-hmm. yeah so the, the loneliness did did last um i did try to push my family away i tried to push my fiance away it did carry over um, for a couple years. You know, I felt like nobody fully experienced what I experienced or understood what I was going through. And it really wasn't until I got that this one therapist um, that I was able to start getting through that and start seeing things in a different way. And I remember taking a law enforcement class because my agency rem- allowed me to continue to go to these, you know, advanced courses that Florida has, even though I wasn't a police officer any, anymore. And I went to this one sex crimes class, and they had this whole list of all the emotions and all the things that sex victims, sex, sex crime victims feel. And everything on that list was exactly how I felt. Wow. And I realized in that moment that it doesn't matter if they have the injuries I have or if they have the memory of their incident they're going through the same thing I went through. So now I see it completely differently. Um, therapy has helped me. And just being more open-minded about everybody's struggles, you know, have helped me. So I, I don't have the loneliness anymore like I did. And honestly, I've, I've actually, in a place in my life the past year and a half, have just been phenomenal. And I haven't had the depressive episodes and... I've just been very, very fortunate. God, I'm so glad that you took time to talk to us. And uh, you do a lot of work with Wounded Officers Initiative as well? Um, I do some. I, I It's hard for me to get really active. They do want me to play a more active role, uh, role. I love that group and those guys. They've really you know, helped me and others around here a lot um, with our emotional stresses. But... I'm not as I'm not as active, I think, as they would probably like for me to be. Well, you can only um, give hard. what you can give. You know, that's right. the what, thing, what too. Is, what right. Are you, what are you doing now, uh, Stacey? Um, and where are you, and where are you uh, psychologically and yeah, physically? Yeah, so after they medically retired me in March, um, by that August of 2013, I went to the sheriff's office. The sheriff immediately hired me on, didn't have to jump through any hoops. In that same year, in October, is when I finally went back to try to get to a therapist. Um, but it took me going through public breakdown for that to occur. So I do still see her occasionally, but now it's, you know, I can space it out. I can go several months without seeing her. Right. And if I feel like I'm having an issue, I just send her a text message and say, hey, can you fit me in this week? You know, I feel like I need to get some stuff off my chest, and she's great. So wow, that's, um, being able to- that's the best part so far, other than you're here telling the story with us, that you, you found somebody that is helping you. 
Right. And she's wonderful. And she's a mental health counselor. And I purposely chose one of those instead of psychiatrist because I didn't want anybody trying to push more medication on me. <laughs> yeah. No. So I'm, I'm so thrilled you're here. And you're a perfect example of staying in the fight and surviving a horrific, violent incident. And also staying in the fight and surviving and having a more pleasant life. And I'm sure you're not where you want to be yet, but you're a lot better than you used to be. Oh, I'm a thousand times better than I used to be. Um, you know, and career-wise, I don't think I'm going to find anything that I was passionate, as passionate, you know, that I am passionate about. I thought I would be a cop forever. Me too. I don't know that there's going to be a job out there that makes me happy. I was with the sheriff's office for three years in civilian positions, and I was unhappy. I just recently started at in January, and it's just a job. I mean, they pay well. I'm not unhappy, but career-wise, I think everything from here on out is just going to be just a job. Maybe you will find uh, what I did is I found out I got into radio, and that was something that I found uh, that I really, really enjoyed. But you might be surprised where you wind up career-wise, and you'll probably, I'm sure, more than likely find something that you're thrilled to do. Thank you so very much for spending part of your time with us today and for your candor and, and talking about these things. And I'm sure that... Right now, somebody who's going through some of that personal hell that you talked about understands exactly. You let them know that it gets better. Uh, and then it's Absolutely. important to stay in this thing and get the help and talk to people, even when it's uncomfortable. So I want to thank you so very much. And we're definitely have you back again in the future. Thank you. I'd like to thank our guests for coming on the Law Enforcement Talk radio show. The Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show is a nationally syndicated weekly radio show broadcast on numerous AM and FM radio stations across the country. We're always adding more affiliate stations. If you enjoyed the podcast version of the show, which is always free, please do me a favor and tell a friend or two or three. I'll be back in just a few days with another episode of the Law Enforcement Talk Radio Show and podcast. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya. See ya.